This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we are very pleased to welcome Gene Trowbridge, a uh, extremely experienced uh, SEC and securities attorney that is going to be talking about how to uh, go through some of the more intricate ways of investing in private placements with related to commercial real estate. It is a wealth of knowledge with well over 40 years of investing experience. So it's definitely something you're going to want to stick around for. <clears throat> but today on the download, we've actually had some relatively good news or at least some good, seemingly good news out of the uh, financial markets uh, on the directions that they're going. So hopefully we will uh, see slightly better turn than what we've been talking about for the past year. Of course, over the holiday weekend, we had Black Friday, which normally sees about 20 to 30% of the holiday shopping or retail sales happen over this uh, short span of time from the Friday following Thanksgiving till Monday. Uh, And Black Friday was wholly a bust uh, with in-store shopping. People are seemingly just not heading to stores and uh, looking into Monday morning's retail reports, it was uh, pretty bad with a lot of retailers showing either a still negative balance sheet for the year or at least just a slightly uh, edging towards a break even. However, this Monday, uh, 11.28, showed almost a doubling of the sentiment for online retail shopping. So while we've seen this certainly edge up in past years, especially with covid Uh, It has just been an absolute uh, blow the doors off of kind of weekend for retailers with many seeing almost 40 to 50 percent of their once more traditional brick and mortar sales now come from solely online shopping. So good news for the retail market. However, most retailers are still well below their projected averages for the year. But at least there is some good news coming out of that with people seemingly to be opening up to a little bit more of online shopping. But with the fears of inflation and a looming recession still very much on people's minds, retail has been taking quite a hit this year. With a little bit more broader context, we have some better news out of China coming with the easing of some of their COVID restrictions for exports, uh, which is helping to ease some of the supply chain issues. However, the easing of some of these COVID restrictions comes on the heels of some more severe, uh, comes on the heels of more severe personal lockdown measures, which are being widely condemned by human rights activists as being incredibly severe, which are leading to large-scale protests, which haven't seen this scale since the 1980 Tiananmen Square protests for at least personal freedoms for Chinese citizens. So while the global economy is benefiting from some of the actions of China, its own citizens are certainly seeing a large pushback and large-scale protests are starting to erupt across the country. So of course, this will be something to watch as if there is civil unrest somewhere that typically has a direct impact on things like exports and the economy as well. Now, with 
holiday travel season gearing up. Unfortunately, we have some not so great news coming out of the oil markets, which, of course, affect everything from you driving to see your grandmother at Christmas to flying for vacations and everything else, because everything kind of runs on the back of oil. Um, The prices are rising amid the U.S. cutting its stockpile reserve releases and OPEC set to meet in the coming weeks. OPEC meeting is largely seen to be a focus on more production cuts, which is going to lead to direct rise on crude oil costs. So, of course, this will be something to watch. We don't know what OPEC's going to do until they do it. They have a long history of being very secretive about what exactly is going to happen in their meetings until you know they actually release their reports. And if any type of past performance is an indicator of future endeavors, we will most likely see them vote to start cutting production costs as a direct uh, measure towards other external factors, as a lot of these countries are uh, being a little bit combative with each other and the global markets in general. Um, you know, it's just kind of uh, what happens when you have different legislative and uh, geopolitical issues kind of factoring into to what these countries are going to be doing when it comes to setting oil production rates. So, of course, it'll be something to watch, but it's going to be generally seen as something that's going to start raising oil prices with the U.S. Uh, starting to ease the release of their strategic reserves that was aimed at kind of just band-aiding over the issue of extremely high oil prices that we saw earlier this year. U.S. equities are edging higher <laughs> on trading of 11.29 as the Fed chair Jerome Powell is set to give talks this week on the Fed's path forward with their uh, continued rate hikes and also the state of the uh, inflationary measures in the United States as well. The interest rate increases have certainly had a dampening effect on the U.S. economy, <laughs> excuse me, which was the intended effect. But of course, you know, with uh, basically clockwork every two months, 75 point basis Point hikes. Now we're seeing 30-year fixed rate, 30-year fixed rate mortgages sitting at almost seven, seven percent or higher. So it definitely certainly has had the effect of cooling off housing markets quite a bit and also uh futures trading as well. But the general sentiment from a lot of in from a lot of analysts is that Jerome Powell is expected to announce that they're going to be reducing the amount of the rate heights from 75 basis points to 50, which has a lot of investors cheering. The uh, U.S. futures are certainly looking a lot stronger than they have in the previous part of the year. So again, it's just like with the OPEC meetings, it's going to be something that we're going to have to wait and see on, but it'll definitely be interesting to see what the head of the Fed is going to put out there. I'm especially interested to see what their indication their indicators on uh, inflationary on the inflationary measures are going to look like now cryptocurrency has certainly been in the market certainly been in the minds of many in the market with the huge collapse of trading house ftx led by sam bankman freed now this has not been an ancillary event there have been enormous ripple effects throughout the entirety of the crypto markets seeing things like bitcoin falling well t- falling to their almost five-year lows and a lot of other different, uh, 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 let's see, (laughs) uh, cryptocurrency platforms and cryptocurrency companies taking a massive hit as well. One coming out this week, which is very big news, is the cryptocurrency lending platform BlockFi has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Now, BlockFi is a large crypto lending platform, which essentially would allow people to invest in 
to uh, crypto loans where you could stake your crypto, people could borrow it, and you could uh, you know hedge on being a lender in a space rather than an actual equitable owner. Uh, this is very large news as they had a very large stake and an under underpinning in the FTX native token, uh, which for those of you that aren't familiar, a lot of different cryptocurrency companies for utilization of liquidity will either make a token themselves or use something like Tether, which I've talked about in the past, which causes issues if one of these particular companies has a big issue or goes out of business, then the underlying liquidity standard can either be de-pegged at you know, being dollar for dollar or just become valuable you less, in which case they're going to have a big issue on actually moving assets or creating markets, which is basically what happened with uh, BlockFi. So will be interesting to see once the U.S. Uh, bankruptcy attorneys start getting in there and start to move things around as to what the actual effects of this are going to be, because BlockFi did have a lot of outstanding loans of cryptocurrency to many other cryptocurrency platforms. So with them filing for Chapter 11, it's definitely going to be something to very, have a very close eye on if it comes to uh, people that are looking to invest in cryptocurrency or people that are holding their cryptocurrency on other platforms, as this might be a big canary in a coal mine to start reevaluating some of your crypto positions. Now, to come back into a slightly more um, a cheery topic before we uh, move over into the what is, uh, Canadian Canadian lending markets... Uh, for real estate are being are looking to be a little bit better off with home price with home sales starting to increase according to a report really recently released by the Royal Bank of Canada or RBC however the uh, the rate hikes that the Canadian Central Bank were doing seem to have worked and in line with the US markets have started to stabilize a little bit however the real estate markets in Canada are down 30% year over year so although we are starting to see some improvement in the areas of things like real estate and interest rates and the like, we still are not out of the woods yet, but at least we're starting to see some stability in these markets. And it's great to see that our neighbors to the north are indeed seeing a bit of stabilization on their end as well. This has been The Download. Today on the what is, what is the Jobs Act? Since we're going to be talking with a seasoned uh, securities attorney, I figured it would be appropriate to define what exactly the big block of legislation that kind of created real estate syndications for the average investor is, and that is the Jobs Act or the Jumpstart Our Business Startups. The Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, or Jobs Act, is a piece of U.S. legislation that was signed in law by President Barack Obama in April of 2012 that loosens the regulations instituted by the SEC on small businesses. It lowers reporting and disclosure requirements for companies with less than $1 billion in revenue and allows the advertising of securities offerings. It also allows a greater access to crowdfunding and generally expands the number of companies that can offer stock without going through SEC reg- registration. This is the Jobs Act, and this is the What Is. Hi, 
Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we are pleased to welcome Gene Trowbridge of Trowbridge Law Group, LLP, a law firm specializing in uh, syndication and private security uh, practice areas. So, Gene, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, you're welcome, Alex. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I'm happy we're doing it today. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you go to law school? Did you practice in other areas before you kind of got into this niche of, uh, you know, rather specialized law? And, you know, give us the uh, the background on yourself. All right. So it's a um, it's a three part life that I've had. Alex, I, I came out of college, the University of Minnesota, a long time ago and uh, with an accounting degree. But I didn't want to be a CPA. I wanted to be a salesman. So I went off to sell commercial real estate, which was a big ticket item back then. Uh, one of the biggest ticket items you could sell if you weren't an engineer and couldn't sell room-sized computers and airplanes and all that stuff. Uh, and so I did that for a while. And while I was doing that, uh, that was probably seven or eight years, I started buying some properties myself. And then like all good syndicators, I found a property that I couldn't afford to buy by myself. And uh, I, uh, I went to three or four friends, and well, actually three friends, and the four of us bought this property, and here I am, a syndicator. So that started really the second phase of my career, went on for about uh, all 15, 16 years, where I was full-time in the syndication business. I was raising money through the broker dealer community back then. Uh, lucky to get in that uh, that marketplace, which is something that wouldn't happen uh, wouldn't happen today. And um, what I what did I do? I built self storage. Okay. I built self storage throughout the Southern uh, California area. By that time, I'd moved to California. And I was building self-storage. And we, when it was done, we had built 32 self-storage facilities. And we built them and got them uh, up to about a 50% absorption. And my strategy was never to be a long-term operator of self-storage. So we sold them to long-term operators, public storage and, and the like. Well, over time, that market kind of changed. Some of the people we were selling to us thought they could build their own projects. So I I kind of saw that I might have to pivot on what I was doing. So um, one day I went home and um, I will tell you that the all the great decisions in life are made around, in my life, are made around the kitchen table. So I went home at lunch and talked to my wife and I said, you know, I've got about six or seven years of income coming in here without raising another penny. Uh, we've got a nice net worth. I think I'm going to do what I always wanted to do. So at 45 years old, I went off to law school. <laughs> and at, I went to, there are not a lot of schools that'll take a 45-year-old person into law school. So it's called Western State. Um, and I went to law school and I graduated and I passed the bar. And so I've been doing this now. For 30 years, Alex. Oh, wow. And uh, never anything other than securities laws. I I knew when I went to school, I, I wasn't going to be a criminal lawyer or a family law lawyer. I was going to be a paper pusher. 
uh, securities lawyer, never go to court, never do anything like that. So I've been doing that for 30 years. And my practice is uh, 80% real estate, um, private placements, regulation D offerings, which we might talk about in a minute, and maybe some regulation A offerings. And we've made inroads into the cannabis business, into uh, liquor. A lot of people develop their own IPA beers and then want to raise money and go out and, mm-hmm. and get some bigger equipment in a store and all that. And they do that through crowdfunding. So we've we've been doing that. So that's that's where we are now. There's six people in my firm. I have a law partner and then um, all the other associates that I need to keep our, our business run. Awesome. Yeah, we've definitely had a lot of... Uh... Uh, you know, crossing of the things that we operate in. I've uh, one of the cooler things when, although not nearly as long of a career as you, but, um, you know, starting off in my career when uh, here in Florida, craft beer back in 2011, 2012 was starting to really blossom as an industry in the state. I got, you know, the first experience of people doing investments and that kind of stuff. And um, unfortunately with our regulations, uh, with uh, the the federal prohibition on cannabis and all that stuff, we unfortunately had to steer away from being able to hold that kind of stuff in retirement plans. But I'm sure once you know the federal government changes up, I'm sure the in the direction I'm sure they're going to go in the near future, uh, that'll be kind of an interesting industry to see open up to a lot more of investors that uh, that we deal with. So it's pretty cool. So you 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 started in commercial real estate. And as a, you know, an operator, then a syndicator, and then got out of that and then went to law school and kind of came right back into it just on a different side. So you've really seen the commercial real estate business from all angles. I mean, it's that's pretty interesting. I haven't ever talked to someone that's really had that kind of experience in it, um, whether that is just the amount of time you've done it or just that kind of pivot. Um, most of the people that I've talked to that have had that amount of time in real estate are, are pretty much on the single family side. I haven't ever really talked to sure. someone that's had that much experience in commercial real estate. So um, like what decade did you start with uh, start in commercial real estate and um, self-storage? When was that? Uh, uh, the seventies, I was a broker, the eighties and the early nineties. Uh, I was the syndicator. And then, like I said, 95, I went to, uh, to law school, I'll tell you, it's funny listening to you. When I was doing my syndications, I was using a couple different legal firms. And when I told them I was going to stop doing the syndications, I would I was going to go to law school. They all said, stop, stop. You know, we all want to do what you're doing. You know, we don't want to be lawyers anymore. We want to be syndicators. I said, have at it. You know, in my career. Man, we're talking about the uh, 78 and 79 was a market crash. The Tax Reform Act of 86 was a crash. Uh, 91 was a crash. There were a lot of, uh, and there are a lot of ups and downs, of course, in the economy and cycles. Um, Interesting, though, the securities business has been pretty straightforward. I could say that without exception, I've done more business every year that I've been in business, even through the COVID, even through mm-hmm. the last three or four years, our firm year over year has done more. Yeah. More and I would say in that whole timeline, um, really, as far as the private securities world goes, there really hasn't been two huge 
too many huge blocks of legislation besides the Jobs Act that have really kind mm-hmm. of changed too much in that arena. I mean, you had the stuff in 2008 with Sarbanes-Oxley and stuff, but that's a lot more to do with public securities. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you would say that, uh, you know, just of how little has changed. I mean, obviously markets have changed. I mean, you went through the 80s of seeing interest. I mean, how was it How was it trying to underwrite deals with interest rates in the 80s? Um, was it any different well, or did the numbers change? Cap rates were a lot higher. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh... cap rates were a lot higher, and you know, I think that the the difficult parts of the market all through my career um, really are the financing issues. There are several times during my career that there was just no financing at all. So, but we still kept doing syndications. We kept doing syndications with hard money loans, with seller carryback. And for example, when when everyone was out there uh, buying properties in 2005 and 2006 and putting five-year loans on them, and then 2008 came along, there was no way to refinance, and that was a hiccup in the market. But then all the vulture funds came along. So as far as being a syndicator, there's always it's always a market. But I think it's I think it's financing. I used to say if the bank was going to lend everyone 100%, we wouldn't need any syndications. But that wasn't the truth. Mm-hmm. And now that the bank is lending 50%, you know, if everyone's got 10% down, we need five investors. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Uh, one other thing I would I would just be curious to know, though, is that did you see, and I think we're kind of coming into it uh, now, and I've I've seen it a lot because I've dealt a lot in the single family space as well. Would you say that the times that the popularity of things like the more creative financing, the carryback, the um, the owner financing, those other things, do those come at times of higher inflation, or is it is it inexplicably linked to uh, interest rates? What is the kind of defining factor that you've seen since you've seen so much in this mm-hmm. industry of what kind of triggers that for people maybe that are listening? And we'll get into what I want to talk about, but I find this fascinating to have someone with this much experience on here. Um, what do you think kind of like props up those types of strategies for people um, that to, to look at. Because I always tell people, look, be creative. You don't just have to say, okay, we have traditional financing. If we can't get that, if the cap rates don't make sense, if things aren't working out, then you know we're we're you know dead in the water. There's always a way to make this work. Um, you sure. know, people want to buy and sell real estate. So, what would you say to that? Of what kind of markers have traditionally pushed those types of strategies? Well, piggy, piggybacking on what I said before, I think it's always. <clears throat> the cost of funds and the availability of funds that changes that changes the structuring that you see out there it's not inflation you know cap rates go up and down and, uh, and and all that and no one's really worried about the cost of money until they're refinancing <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. the 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 thing that's that's important to know when you underwrite a property i think and i think a good lender does this is they underwrite it now and they underwrite it for when their loan is scheduled to come due let's say have a five-year loan if i'm the lender i know i don't want to be the only source of refinancing that loan five years from now i want someone else to take that loan so i'm going to look at What's the projection of the NOI five years from now? What's our crystal ball about <laughs> cap rates? Yeah, What's yeah. our crystal ball about value and our crystal ball about cost of funds? Will other people be out there to cash out this loan? Yeah. And 
if they aren't, I'm not going to make the loan. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really kind of interesting way to put it. I think this is going to segue nicely into kind of what we had discussed about talking about is that from the investor side of things, I think you can kind of draw a lot of parallels to saying, okay, well, you know, does this does this deal look good on paper now? Okay, here's my preferred return. You know, I feel comfortable with this syndicator, but you know, it's you don't just look at, you know, this year or next year, you know, if you have a five-year loan written into that, most of you know, I would say the predominant majority of these exit strategies are a refi. Granted, some people come in and they just get an offer and they sell. Again, definitely probably more a minority on that. Mainly the strategy is for the refi. Um, you know, don't look now, look at when that, you know, look at what your strategy is, you know, five year when that comes due. Are you going to be in a sticky situation where all your investment strategy is turned on its head? Uh, would you say that's kind of kind of accurate for the Absolutely. Too? I think a good broker, a good syndicator is always looking or should at least be looking at an exit strategy. Okay. So now I was just on the phone before this call with, with um, someone who's done a lot of business, a lot of syndication. And they're telling me that in the next two years, they have some of these bridge loans, three years plus one plus one mm -hmm. coming due. And with the interest rate going from, you know, from three to seven or whatever it is today, uh, they're going to have trouble. They're going to have trouble ref, uh, refinancing. So they're thinking of capital calls, not for the reason that you think a normal capital call would be to, to help in times of high vacancy, high expenses. They're just simply looking for capital calls as a, an additional pay down. Uh, so when they, they have their $5 million loan that they can only refinance for four, yeah. They're looking to raise an extra million. So it's extra equity. Yeah. That makes and, sense. And, there, and I think I, I said, yes, I've been through that. Uh, I've been through that. But one of the big things that we see tonight, today, Alex, is 1031 exchanges. Mm -hmm. Because disregarding what's happened in the last six months, everyone who's bought since, uh, you know, 2015 has a lot of equity. Yeah, they have yeah. a lot of capital gains. So let's exchange into something else. And what I'm finding is those transactions usually end up having to be some sort of a, a tenant in common transaction because mm -hmm. the equity that they have coming out of their property won't be enough on its own to buy a bigger property, which they have to go into a bigger property. So they'll put together a syndication for the extra million or $2. They might have 5 million, but they really need seven to get that $25 million property. So we're doing a lot of, a lot of tenants in common, which is interesting. And, and this goes into your business, you know, I'm 75 years old. Don't ask me to do an exchange <laughs> with another seven-year projected hold if my investment in your deal is my IRA. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a. This is. I could. I could probably talk to you for hours on this. I'm. I'm a huge nerd when it comes to the kind of nuts and bolts of this. But let's kind of get down to what I think. Um, you know, we we discuss and we can. You know, if we have time at the end, we can branch off again. But. 
Uh, awesome information. So what we initially discussed is talking about how people can, you know, vet and, you know, red flags and things to look for when you're coming in as an investor, uh, things to know in, in, you know, when it comes to commercial real estate and syndications, you know, if you're kind of fresh into this, what are some really good road mapping type things that you can do as an investor to say, okay, one, I understand, you know, you know, what I'm investing in, what are some of the issues that typically are run into by investors in these types of scenarios? And, you know, in general, you know, for someone that is a little bit uh, greener in the space, you know, how to be safe and successful when investing in commercial real estate syndications. Okay, I've got uh, four questions I think an investor should ask. And you're going to find out none of them really have anything to do with the investment. (laughs) But I think before you get too far into it, you should ask these questions. And for those of you who are listening who are syndicators, I suggest you have an answer for these. Absolutely. The first question is, Alex, I've looked at your deal. It looks pretty good. You've got a minimum investment of $50,000. I got $50,000. I'd love to invest in your deal, Alex. But tell me what happens if something happens to you. Mm -hmm. And that's a showstopper right there. In fact, our law firm, we will not write any syndication documents where Alex as an individual is the managing member. We have to have continuity. We have to have legal continuity. I've had clients who in the last three years who died of COVID. What do you do if that client is the only person who can sign loan documents, is the only person who can can make decisions for the entity? What do you do? The Passive investors don't want to take over. They don't know anything they can't take over. So I think the number one question is continuity. And so in order to solve that, we just suggest in today's market that Alex go out and find someone else uh, and the two of you at a minimum uh, form an LLC to be the managing member. So we have continuity in my world when I was syndicating I formed an S corporation to be the general partner. We were doing limited partnerships at the time. And then that S corporation, of course, has unlimited life. Okay, you just need to figure out who's the board of directors and who are are the shareholders, and that was fine. Um, Limited liability companies can be dissolved by law if the single member is gone. Yeah. You know, so you've got some problems there. So don't invest like that. So what, would, so what would inherently would be, so to, to kind of bridge off that, what inherently would be the benefit of having an LLC be a managing partner or a man or a uh, general or would have, but to be the, having an LLC with multiple partners being a managing member or being a general partner, what inherently would be the difference or the benefit of that? Versus, let's just say, having two people, you know, just name two managing members. I mean, I guess that would kind of split up the, they would have to have equitable interest if they're members. I guess I would probably. You could have two managing members, but I don't like that because if you visualize, Alex, the, the entity that's, no one can see this, but there's an entity that's an LLC mm-hmm. that all the investors go into. Okay. Yeah. That LLC protects those investors from the outside world. But if Alex, you step into that LLC just as Alex, and you say, I'm going to be the member, you have no protection from the other investors. Okay. I got so, you. you know, no matter what, 
we gotta we've got to <clears throat> protect the managers in some sort of an entity, an S corporation or an LLC <clears throat> from the other investors. We have to do that. Gotcha. And would you say that to kind of further drill down on that as far as um, you know, one of the things that you say to look out for, should the um, the investment provider, the managing partner, uh, the general partner, should should you pretty much be looking, they say, okay, great, you know, I see this, but should they have some transparency on who the actual shareholders of that entity are? Absolutely. Okay. Um, the whole world of securities law is based on full disclosure. Mm -hmm. So... The um, private placement memorandum, which part of which is a disclosure document, will name the manager and then will name the individuals who are in the manager. And in the in my documents, exhibit four, which is the investment summary, the whatever the business plan, there's going to be a biography of Alex and whoever the other person is, a little track record, a little biography. Yes, you'd be you'd be required to uh, required to give that. Now the investors don't need to see. Let's say you and I were in a deal as managing as two members of the managing uh, member. They don't need to see our agreement. Yeah, they just need to know who we are, who's making decisions, and they don't even need to know how we're splitting whatever we get, but they yeah. do need to know that there is continuity. So that's the first question. Yeah. The second, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and to that point, so um, to kind of, to bring this into perspective is that if you're, you know, beginning investor in this kind of stuff, um, you know, those are, again, that is required disclosure. If you have an entity in a managing position and a, and a, in a private security that they disclose Absolutely. the interest in that. So if you're an investor, you know, past just seeing the continuity of business, if they don't disclose that, again, big red flag, you know, you can pull a PPM offline and make something look really fancy and official. But, you know, these are the kind of things that you need to, again, trust but verify. And if you don't see that, again, huge red flag, you know, pump the brakes, you know, reevaluate things, move a different direction. But again, Mm -hmm. Making sure that they, you know, do just don't they don't say, oh yes, we have continuity because we have this. You need to have, you know, the other part of that equation there as well. That's true, and I think that there's no one, no one looking over the shoulder of that manager entity and making a decision whether they're okay, whether it's done correctly or anything. The investor needs to look at that. You know, the the plan administrator is not going to go through that. Yeah, we, and, we don't make any decision about that. They just need to know who's signing, what's the authority, and uh, is that the authority that's signing the operating agreement and the subscription agreement? Be done with it. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Great. What's the uh, What's the next one you got for us? The next question is, Alex, uh, have you done this before? <laughs> yep. So it would be it would be great to say, yeah, I've done thirty two things, but every one of us, including myself when I was asked that question way back when, had to say no, I haven't. But here's my real estate background. So you have to have some real estate background, some background, some credibility to get the first deal done. So when someone asks you the next time, you can say, hell yes, I've done one. <laughs> but that may, that may be all that it takes. And, and you know, Alex, in your first deal, I found over the years that the investors generally are known pretty well to the syndicator. 
Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to use the term friends and family because that brings up other questions, but there, there's a pre-existing relationship. They know that Alex is successful in whatever business he's in. Maybe it's a real estate business. And gee, if, if Alex found some opportunity and he let me be part of that opportunity, I'd like to do that. And then you get your first deal done. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that's quite important. Yeah, absolutely. And and to the point that you mentioned of friends and family, that is an actual legally defined term when it comes to securities law under Reg D, Reg A, and the Jobs Act, correct? Of, of an investor. Uh, no, it, no, the the legal term is pre-existing. Okay. And it doesn't have to be. There's no exception. And that's one of the the fallacies. People call me all the time and say, well, I'm just going to do a friends and family deal. I said, I don't, you know, I don't care. <laughs> You're going to do a deal if it's 506B where you have a pre-existing relationship with the people. And I don't care who they are. In fact, you could make an argument. Well, that's stupid, Alex, to take family members into your deal. Yeah, it makes for, it makes for a really awkward Thanksgiving dinner next week if you uh, have have investments in friends and family. I, that's that's kind of my favorite term for that. No, one. pre pre existing and substantive is really the issue. Okay. But anyhow, so so have you done it before? So that's important. And one of the things I'm seeing today, kind of off to the side, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, multifamily syndication has been very very strong. There's an imbalance in supply and demand between in housing. So we don't have enough housing. So multifamily is good. We've had a lot of people who've lived in apartments who are now going to invest in apartments because they think they understand it more so than a mini storage facility. Sure. Um, okay, so that's all fine. But I've got sponsors who are leaving the multifamily business and heading for, uh, let's say, mobile home parks. Because mobile home parks today's market are generating more cash flow. Absolutely, I've I've seen that. I, I can I can echo that with what I've been seeing as far as people trying to either break into that market or just the popularity of of people actually syndicating and trying to get into mobile home parks just because of the you know the shift in you know they were kind of an underappreciated asset class in this space for so long. You know people you know, like to kind of look down on, on trailers, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. If you can, that's where you can afford to live is where you can afford to live. Um, but you know, those things make money. That's just as green as an apartment building. That's just as green as a million dollar home. You know, those checks cash. Yeah. So, it's low income housing. Yeah. It really is low income and good housing for seniors and all that. But what I'm concerned about, if I've asked you, you know, have you done this before? And you said, well, I've done five multifamily investments and they're all clicking along but this mobile home park in Temecula California is really a good deal well wait a minute yeah what what do you know about mobile homes I went through a training once through some organization that teaches you how to how to uh, do mobile homes I was going to be a speaker so I thought I'd go to the whole event and they showed a three-hour video of a tour through a factory that builds the coaches mm -hmm. that's not apartment uh, construction that's totally different and i kind of think if you're going to buy a mobile home park where you're going to own the coaches 
there's an education to that. Now, if, if it's just the tenants who own their own coaches and you just own the land, maybe that isn't all that important. But if you're actually going to own the coaches, what do you know about construction? I mean, you know about construction when you walk through your apartment building. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But what do you know about those coaches? And so you know, have you done this before? Is The emphasis on the word this is probably good. Yeah, and I'm pretty well versed in the mobile home space and just the amount of difference in construction. I mean, the nice thing about apartment buildings is that, you know, you might have 150 <laughs> units and 300 toilets. And you know what? You can buy one toilet to put in every single apartment. You start getting into the mobile home space. And unless you had built a ground up one from the same manufacturer, you might have 30 pads that have, and let's say you own the coaches, you have all these different maintenance issues that you don't have with a you know traditional um, you know, apartment complex, then you have things like, um, you know, common roadways. If you are, you, you know, you, you have to pave roads. If you're on septic, you have, you know, to deal with huge septic systems and then EPA issues with all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's just a paradigm shift. And I think that echoes very well. You know, you might, you know, you go to someone and say, Hey, yeah, I've been doing syndications for a long time. Okay, great. That's awesome. What kind of syndications, you know, just because it's a syndication, it could be, self-storage a big one here in florida now is car washes um people are syndicating mm -hmm. um these little car wash things cash flow yeah cash flow cash flow yeah you know, my not... i have people who go from multifamily to to storage because what's attractive is you've got 600 units and only one bathroom yeah <laughs> yeah you have 600 <laughs> units and no tenants yeah no tenants yeah well Tool. There's always someone who's sleeping in their unit and they're not yeah. supposed to. I, I've got stories about that. <laughs> but anyhow, that's the second question. So, Alex, the third question is, um, Alex, are you going to have skin in the game? Now, my feeling of skin in the game has changed over the years. When I was doing syndication, it just simply meant cash. Mm -hmm. If I'm asking everyone to put in 50000 am I going to put in 50000 or is 25 enough or or what? And that's kind of a marketing issue. The buyer will decide if I have enough skin in the game. But if you really think about it, all the syndicators are signing the mortgage. It might even be a non-recourse mortgage, but there's still carve-outs. And certain types of properties, it's a recourse mortgage. So I think as a syndicator, I should be ready to tell the story that, yes, I do have skin in the game. I'm going to put some money in. I've had a lot of time invested in finding this property to bring it to you. And I'm going to sign on the mortgage. Yeah. So what do you, so what do you think about, and this is something I've run into with people, especially with, you know, some syndications where they'll have, let's say, you know, several uh, general partners or managing members. Um, and they kind of have various reasons why they're in there. Some might be, you know, the, the operator. Um, another one might be just, you know, the high net worth individual that comes in to sign on those loan documents. They might have someone else that has, let's say not a, a cash skin in the game, but they're the one that went out and bird dogged the deal. Um, and then came in, you know, found it, did all the legwork and actually got the deal to fruition. So what are your thoughts on that, where you start having, you know, quite a few people in the managerial operational, you know, rung of it, you know, not the passive investor, the actual active um, investor in that? Is it something that you think is a red flag? Is it commonplace or is it just something where you need to make sure that, you know, the person that is really running the ship is the one that has all the experience? Um, maybe you could enlighten us a little bit on that. Yeah, I think it's a smell test. I think if you've got a, a bird dog, who's found the property, you've got a KP who's strong enough to sign on the loan, and you've got maybe a 
uh, property manager who's who can write reports and, and run the bank and everything. You've got the syndicate or you're fine. But I've seen deals where there's 15 of those people. Mm. And and the problem is four of them are actually involved in the deal and the other 11 are there because of their money raising capabilities. And I think that's a huge red flag. Yeah, you don't if want to have too many cooks in the kitchen. Is, yeah, if all they're going to do is raise money and and you know, I don't want to get started on the securities law application of that. But if all they're going to do is raise money and don't have any material uh, involvement, uh, do you do you get a good feeling that it's a really big group for continuity and they've done it before? No, you don't. No, you don't. So besides what, so that's kind of interesting to me. I mean, besides just anecdotally of me thinking, okay, you know, just like with any business, if you have, you know, 18 bosses for, you know, 10, 12 investors, that doesn't really make sense. Uh, you know, it'd kind of be miserable to get anything done. Uh, you know, besides just kind of, again, the anecdotal kind of obvious reasons, what are some, you know, kind of to dig a little bit deeper, what are some of the issues that arise from that? And, and have you seen some of those specific use cases you might be able to speak on as well for having just that huge block of people in the active or managerial position? Well, generally in that situation, the manager LLC, the manager operating agreement identifies um, the responsible people, the authorized representative the managing member. They may all be in there just as members, but there's one or two managing members that make the decision. I think if, and once again, you have to disclose that. If I found 15 people and all of them you know, were voting, it was going to be a majority vote on what to do, I'd run. we got to have one or two people. And back to, I'm investing because of you, Alex. I'm not investing because Gene Trowbridge you know, raised a quarter of the money and doesn't really have any involvement. I'm investing in the lead, if you want to use that term. I am investing in you and your experience. So, so I think that's a good uh, that's a good thing. Plus, I think it's a it's a red flag for the securities uh, regulators when they see that many people in there, and they know that they don't have a material uh, role in running the project. They know that they're only in there because they brought in money. And then we're then we're running some trouble in the securities act. So then the last, what do we say? Continuity. Have you done it before? Give skin in the game. So Alex, the last question is, Alex, you know I'm 75. How do I get my money out? What's the liquidity provision in this deal? And you are going to say that you have you know, professional attorneys that have drafted the document and in uh, in Article 11 and 12, we have the two plans for liquidity, and I'll give you the document. You can read it, and we can talk about it. You have to solve that. You have to uh, have to have an answer for that. Now, yeah. we don't. So far, we haven't talked about what type of property it is, what's the cash flow, what's the anything. But I think those are crucial, crucial questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to the point of you know those four questions that you ask someone is that. <clears throat> you know, the, the they kind of, the, the questions kind of lead into it. You know, have you done it before? No? Okay, well then the, it's kind of irrelevant because, you know, you're stopping there. You know, if you have done it before, okay, great. What do you understand about this? Here's what I understand. And I'd always, I always encourage clients, you know, use the investment provider to try to help further your research. Hopefully if they've done it before, they can provide you some information that you can fact check and help bolster your understanding of what you're doing. Um, you know, hopefully you have a good understanding of the investment 
anyway, you know, I would not recommend someone that is, you know, never done real estate before to go, okay, great. Blindly hand someone their money. If you don't understand the first thing about what the investment is granted, there's an argument to be made that that's what everyone does in the stock market, but here we are. <laughs> um, so yeah, to that point now, one thing that I've uh, run into, so I've had kind of similar conversations with a few different uh, syndicators on issues that they're seeing uh, more more prevalent and current, um, you know, with these, uh, with syndications. So a few questions I'd like to ask you that we kind of got through your, you know, big banner things to ask, are there things that are changing or that, you know, let's just say maybe the less, and I always like to phrase this as politically correct as possible, you know, the, the maybe less reputable or just like not as good syndicators are putting in there that are kind of hoodwinking people or, or maybe a little bit deceptive. One that a syndicator brought to my attention is that they disclose that it is a return of capital and not a return of capital. So that way they get to reduce the returns that they're paying out to their underlying investors it was one that he was seeing crop up that people, you know, just that little switch in word can completely derail what your actual projected mm -hmm. income is from a particular investment. Yeah, I um, I write documents where the sponsor says, I want this to be a return of, so that as soon as we get all of the money returned, then we get to the 80-20 split faster. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. But you can't call it a return. Yeah. It's not a return. It's a distribution equal to. 10% uh, of your original investment because return by definition is a percentage earned on your investment. And we're just giving the money back. It's not a return. And so that's the old, the old issue when I, I taught CCIM courses for 40 years <laughs> and we always taught the difference between return on and return of. And uh, I, there are some reasons I think to do that, but um, you have to be when I write the documents, I'd be very careful that we're not saying, well, it looks like a 15% cash on cash. No, it's a 15% distribution. You won't know what your return is until you get all of your money back. And then the return will be based on new money. Okay. <laughs> and so you have to you have to spell that out. And that boy, that sentence, you know distributions are to be considered a return on or of your investment. That one word yep. needs to be explained to the, to the investors. And I know that there are people who don't, not that they're being shady, they just don't know uh, the difference. Yep. I actually, my most prolific client, Alex, does both. Sure. He says, we're going to give you a um, an 8% distribution based on your original investment amount. And anything over that each year is going to be a return on. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think maybe a better way to kind of go back to my original statement is that, you know, like you said, there might be a, a reason for doing either. And it's not necessarily, you know, a a bad reason to do one versus the other, but for the investor side of things, really understanding and kind of going back into understanding what you're investing in, understand what that means for you. If you're looking for that cash on cash return of saying, hey, I'm parking it there and then I'll get my basis out and then I'm making a preferred return of X and it's return of capital instead of return on capital, well, your whole strategy is shot because of that one word, on to of. Yeah, it's just like going to the bank. I've got uh, 
I got $10,000 in the bank and they're going to pay me 10% interest annually. So I walk down to the bank the last day of the year and I pull out my $1,000, 10% return. I go down to the bank and I pull out 12,000. I mean, I pull out uh, I get 12,000. So I do have a 10% return, but I've taken 2% of my money back. So my distribution is 12. But it's the bank is not paying me twelve percent. Well, if you have a bank that's paying you twelve percent on cash deposits, um, I, I will stay do, there. <laughs> stay there. Right? I will do it just about. You can, there's a lot of things I would do to know where that's happening. Yeah. Right well, now. that's just uh, that's just uh, an example that's easy for everyone to understand. Uh, absolutely. Um, and then one thing you know that you know kind of coming up towards about the end of end of our time, but I would like to cover it and kind of play on your experience in this is you know. With you've seen money get tight, you've seen money get expensive, you've seen money be cheap, you've seen different things go on in the marketplaces. What are some things, at least, that people right now should kind of be? And I, I hesitate to use the word wary of, but maybe just a little bit concerned if they, you know, what a particular strategy, you know, that a uh, syndicator is doing if they're if they're baking in a um, expected refi or you know what a strategy that in these kind of markets, you know, you just need to make sure you understand and really trust your syndicator. Are there things that you have seen work well in the past or that you've seen things that people might need to be concerned about when they're reading the prospectus and the actual strategy that this particular syndication has? Well, in today's market, where are we? November of 2022, exit strategy. It's one thing to say, well, we're going to have a we're going to do this, and in two to three years, we're going to refinance, give you half of your money back, and then continue to hold the property. How do you know? That should be a discussion, what the plan is, how is that feasible, and it should certainly be in the risk section yeah. that this may not this may not happen. And because there have been so many five-year bridge loans, even if it's five year one and one or three years one and one, that you know three four years in the life of a rental property comes and goes pretty fast. If it's at the end of three years you have to refinance, at the end of two you're starting to look for a loan. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I think one of the things that I that that kind of counteracts that problem is I think there's a lot of room for rent growth. People are getting paid, um, depending on what type of property you buy, people are, are getting paid more on their jobs. Uh, because they're getting paid more on their jobs, they can pay more for the rent. Because the rent is going up, even if the cap rate is also going up, we could see a balancing. Cap rate goes up, rent goes up, so my gosh, the property is worth uh what we paid for it five years from now. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's fine. So then the and we started out with a 75% loan. Why can't we get a 75% loan today to refinance it given the values are the same? Now we're not going to be able to pay everyone back part of their principal, which might be important if I'm an IRA investor. Um, once again, I already said uh, we've We've got an issue if the sponsor always wants to just do 1031 exchanges and it's a seven-year hold on top of the seven-year hold on top of the seven-year hold and I'm I'm stuck with my money in my IRA. I think that I would be interested 
in really delving into the probability that the uh, projection of the refinance uh, will happen. Okay. Or then if not, I think we have to look at the liquidity provisions. Okay, now I, I need to get my money out. You know, one of the things that that I know some people do, they invest every penny of their money, their IRA money into a deal. And when the end of the year comes, it's time for them to take, you know, their six, seven, eight thousand dollar mandatory distribution. And there isn't any money in there. Yeah. And the, yeah. I mean, I'm actually running into this right now with a client with a private security. It's a more traditional private security in a company, not a um, like syndication or a deal like that. Uh, but, you know, the workaround for that is, you know, they have, it's through a family office and they have, um, you know, an attorney that's willing to write a um, letter of opinion of value. And we're doing an in-kind distribution of the appropriate amount of shares to satisfy the R&D. That's not nearly as easy if you're not investing through a, um, you know, some type of, uh, you know, family office that has ready access to an attorney that can do that. Um, it is doable, but it definitely is, is a headache, especially for the um, the older clients that are in the pre-tax accounts without Roth IRAs that, you know, you got to you got to figure that out. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, you don't necessarily run into something that's, uh, you know, no one's willing to write a value on for you. No, and I think that comes down to something that the sponsor needs, the lead needs to take into consideration. If you're doing a 506B, you're going to have a uh, offering questionnaire mm -hmm. that is going to help help the sponsor determine if the person is sophisticated to invest in the deal. Do they have an education or investment experience to let you think that they can read the offering memorandum and understand what the risk is? And I have clients who don't want me to ask the investor's age. I said, I, you know, I think that's a mistake. I think you should know who's investing in your deal. If nothing else, for a heads up yeah. on problems that can happen five or six years ago. If you've got, I mean, we have a, we have a deal right now where $3 million was raised as units that are just simply debt. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the debt is going to pay an interest rate and in four years going to mature. Okay. So what if it doesn't mature? Okay, so we have an opportunity to roll that debt one more time. Well, that might be okay unless now I'm eighty. <laughs> yeah, you know, I should have looked at I should have looked at that before I invested. Okay. Well, and also, you know, if you have let's say a bunch of um, significantly a, a pool of significantly older investors, you know, let's say you have three of those investors die and they have five kids each. You know, you're going through three different shareholders with <laughs> probate, and then you have. 15 different shareholders you got to bring in that would I could not imagine the nightmare that that would be. Oh no, that is. And our document says that uh, in that situation, you as the managing member would have the right to determine whether they can vote. You can't stop the economic interest from going to where, wherever it's supposed to go, mm -hmm. but you can control who votes. Yeah. I literally had a situation where a guy died and some of the money went to his chauffeur and some of the money went to his lady friend, not necessarily his wife. And uh, 
we're not, and some of the money went to, you know, kids were minors, basically. Well, we're not going to let them vote. Okay. They get the money, that's fine, but they're not going to vote. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hopefully that's in the operating agreement. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, that, I could just, uh, I could imagine someone writing documents that, you know, maybe didn't cover some of those provisions and just what kind of nightmare that would be. And going back to, you know, from the syndicating side, you know, making sure that, you know, you understand who your investor is as well. I know we've, we've pretty much been focusing on the investor side of things, but I'm sure we could have a whole other hours long conversation of if you're syndicating this, what do you, what do you look out for? And, you know, who you're bringing in to these investments as well. So with that said, again, I, I could pick your brain for hours on this. I, I'm so happy that you came on. It's so cool to talk to someone because I really haven't ever talked to someone in this space that's been doing it for as long as you have, um, which is which is just fantastic. So again, Gene, thank you so much for being a guest with us today. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or they need some legal service in Serena, because I know finding specialized attorneys in this specific space is, you know, they're out there, but, you know, they're they're not nearly as easy as to find a you know a traffic ticket lawyer or a family law provider. So uh, how can they get in touch with you if they uh, want to follow up? Our website is uh, trowbridgelawgroup.com and they can go to the website and they can schedule a consultation with me. That's fine. They can call me directly. My direct line is 949-855. 8399. That's 949-855-8399. And I do want to plug my YouTube channel, which is Trowbridge Law, which has a number of interesting interviews with successful syndicators and all sorts of snippets of things that my partner and I think are important. And we do a presentation on these items and it's a good uh, it's a good place to get your to get educated absolutely we're we're very big on education here at advance we run uh, bi-weekly webinars on all sorts of different topics with great guests we have this podcast where we like to bring on people so it's it's always good to have people yeah. that value education and for someone that's been to college twice uh, i think you probably <laughs> put a good amount of stock in education you know that what's funny alex is that's the only time in my life i was a good student what in law school oh, or accounting? Law school. It was expensive. Yeah, it, it definitely I was, was. forty-five years old, and it was eating into my life with my family. Yeah. And what if I did all that and I didn't pass the bar? There you go. Very valid question. All right. Well, again, thank you very much for being with us today, Gene. I greatly appreciate it. I hope everyone found some uh, good snippets from this conversation that you can take out and use to be successful. This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.